0: This is the Lead Speakers Podcast with Scott Lloyd. In this podcast, you'll hear engaging conversations with everyday leaders and discover their motivations, desires, and passions. Most importantly, hear practical applications and advice for becoming the leader that you've always wanted to be. Welcome to Lead Speakers. I want to remind you of where we left off last time. We were talking about uh, Tuckman's stages of group development. If you remember, there were four of them forming, storming, norming and performing. And then some have added um, you know, a fifth one, adjourning. Um, and we're not going to talk a lot about adjourning, but remember that for every group that you're a part of, there will come a point when that group will cease in its function and cease in its charge because the function and the charge will be have uh, will be completed and even for the church, right? If we think of the church as a large group made up of many small groups, we know that when Christ returns and when he establishes his kingdom, that the need for the church and its function in the earth will cease to be. And we will adjourn that for whatever is next, uh, for whatever God has for us in eternity. But let's return to these four Stages of group development. And what we're going to look at is how Jesus interacted with his disciples in facilitating um, this group's development. So uh, let's look at forming uh, first of all. Forming. Um, the team, and, and, and the way that Tuckman describes forming, the team meets and learns about the opportunities and challenges and then agrees on goals and begins to tackle the task. Team members tend to behave quite independently. They may be motivated but are usually relatively uninformed of the issues and the objectives of the team. Uh, Team members are usually on their best behavior but everyone is focused on themselves and the more mature team members begin to model appropriate behavior even at this early uh, phase and then the meeting environment also plays an important role to model the initial behavior of each individual. So if you go back to the Gospel of John, and if you look at John chapter 1, and we won't, we won't read this entire passage, but John chapter 1, verses 35 through 46, this is the initial gathering of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, John and Andrew are followers of John the Baptist, and they go out and they recruit their brothers and they bring them initially to Jesus. And then there's this interaction, right, where they're uh, having to get in a boat and because there's great crowds that are wanting to hear uh, the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus makes a request of Simon Peter. Uh, to push his boat out from the shore, and Jesus actually teaches from uh, the boat to all of the crowds that have gathered and pressed there on the shore. So it really is an innovative way to address the crowds that have gathered. And one of my takeaways from that story is that Peter, again, uh, demonstrates himself to be a leader in that Jesus asks of him something and he willingly says, here you go, Jesus, I'm going to give that to you. So we see this in the initial stages, in the forming stages of this group of believers as they come together. Um, And so they identify themselves, they identify what they're supposed to do, and we see them moving forward as they become followers of Jesus Christ in this forming stage. And so as a leader, when you are reaching out to people to be a part of your team or to be a part of your ministry, remember that forming is really, really important. And so sometimes we forget as leaders that we have new people that are being attracted to our team that are being attracted to our cause every step of the way. And so we have to go back and we have to recast the vision. We have to remind them of why they are joining and not forget that, Every time someone new comes to the group, it changes the dynamic of the group. It changes what is happening in the group. And so as leaders, it is our responsibility to lay that foundation over and over again. And then there is the, uh, after the forming, you have the storming uh, part of the formation, right? And, And this is the second stage of team development where the group starts to sort itself out and gain each other's trust. And because when you work your way through the Gospels, not every story with the disciples is in chronological order, you have to discern where you're at uh, in the process. So um, in a lot of those stories, even though they did this right up to the moment of of the death and and resurrection of Jesus, you're going to see the disciples jockeying for position. You're going to see them sort of um, you know, trying to outdo the other one and to identify themselves as the right-hand man to Jesus. Uh, famously, uh, James and John had their mother petition for them, right? Can, can my son sit on your right hand and on your left hand? So they were always trying to outdo one another, and this is part of the storming process. And so if you've ever been a part of a group, or if you've ever led a group, you know that it is necessary for there to be conflict within the group. And none of us uh, in our right minds enjoys conflict. But here's the thing about conflict. Conflict is necessary. Conflict uh, must happen within a group in order for the group to move forward. So as much as all of us are opposed to conflict, we need to understand that conflict is necessary and it is normal in order for the group to grow and in order for the group to progress. Uh, in fact, if if you're a part of a group and there is no conflict, um, you're probably not a part of a group. You're probably part of a cult and you want to get out of there as quickly as possible. Because conflict is normal, conflict is to be expected. And uh, just as there uh, is problems if you have an excessive amount of conflict, you also have problems if there is an absence of conflict. So you need to understand that as a group leader, you're going to have this conflict, you're going to have these storms that come about. And in fact, uh, you know, that going back to Brian's story, um, that storm. Uh, revealed a lot about the character of the disciples. They were were seasoned fishermen, a lot of them. They were sailors. They understood what it was like to be in a storm, but this one was so severe that they were ready to give up and they were ready to die. Um, So the more severe the storm is, the the greater um, it reveals about the character of those that are in the middle of the storm. So even if you think you're a seasoned leader, when you face a storm, when you face a crisis, it's going to reveal uh, the character of who you are at your core. And so the illustration that I like to use, I'm I'm just, I like Coke Zero, so I have one here. So if you were, um, if we were walking by one another and you bumped me um, and, and you bumped me hard enough that, Uh, I was to spill the contents of this can, we understand that what would flow out of this Coca-Cola can is Coca-Cola. Why? Because that's what's inside the container. If I was walking by you with a styrofoam cup and you bumped me, whatever I'm drinking is going to spill out of the cup. So what's the principle that we take away? When life bumps us, whatever is in us is likely to come out. And so if it's good things, when life bumps us, good things are going to come out of us. But if it's bad things, right, the bad things are gonna show themselves in the midst of the crisis. So this storming stage is very good for participants, and it's very good for leaders because it is in the storm that it, the contents of our soul, the contents of our heart, the contents of our character is revealed. And this is why, even though we don't like conflict, even though we, we do not enjoy the storms of life, we need to understand that they are very revelatory when it comes to who we are and revealing who we are and the areas where we need to improve and the areas where we need to, to make changes uh, in our lives. So those storms are really, really important. In fact, the storm that G, where Jesus walked on the water, it not only reveals to the disciples who they are, but it reveals to, to the disciples who Jesus is. So they're given the opportunity to walk on the water Peter is the only one that does, right? Because he's confident, perhaps overconfident. And the storm reveals his overconfidence because he begins to sink. And Jesus is there immediately to rescue him and to lead him back to the boat. And then when they get in the boat together and Jesus speaks to the storm and the wind ceases, all of the disciples receive a revelation that this indeed is the Son of God. Who is this that even the, the wind and the waves obey him? And so the storm reveals who Jesus is and it reveals who they are. Even Peter, who thought he was confident and thought he could do this, the storm revealed that it was too much and he began to sink. And so this storming phase is perhaps the most important for the cohesion of a group and for a group coming together and succeeding and whatever they are called to accomplish. So that leads us to the third stage, which is called norming. So you have uh, forming, storming, norming, and in this stage of group development, the leader has a responsibility to see to it that disagreements are being resolved, and personality clashes are being resolved and that people are coming together within the group in a greater intimacy, in a spirit of cooperation that emerges. And so this happens when the team is aware of competition and they share a common goal. And so in this stage, a lot of the jockeying for positions should cease because members should understand okay, this is my role, this is what is expected of me, and I should fulfill that particular role. And it's important for the leader to communicate that along the way. And so what happens in this stage, all the team members take the responsibility and they understand that they have to start working in the same direction for the success of the the goals of the particular team that they're a part of and they start tolerating the whims or the fancies of other team members. So this is when, you know, you, you, you come to know and to understand the personalities and the, the, the conflicts and uh, maybe some of the weirdness of your teammates and members. And this is when these ideas emerge where, oh yeah, something that maybe annoyed you in the beginning, now you understand that that's almost what a team member has to exhibit. That's what they have to do in order for their strength to be revealed. And so you put up with it, you tolerate those things that maybe annoyed you in the beginning. Maybe they still annoy you, but because you understand what the team member brings to the group, you are willing to tolerate it more. And so if a new member comes on board and they say, well, man, that person is really annoying, you're more likely to say, well, that's just who they are. And we understand it because of what they bring. And so the more you love someone and the more intimate you become with that person, the more willing you are to put up with their faults and the more willing you are to overlook those things that might be annoying to someone else. So if you've ever been in a romantic relationship or you've ever been a part of a really close team, you know what I'm talking about. Those little things, right? That in the beginning would annoy you or set you off over time. You you forget about them and you overlook them and you ignore them. Why? Because you love them so much and you understand that a lot of that is necessary in order for that team member to function at their highest potential and their highest performance. And so what would annoy others, you look to as a strength because you understand it's necessary in order for us to become the team that we're intended to become. So the the idea of norms, right? So there are constructs that develop over time within the group culture that says that's the normal way that we behave and we all agree we enter into a uh, an agreement of sorts that says we're going to put up with all of this that would annoy others and may still annoy us because we understand this is the normative way that our group functions and in order for to get to the next stage We've got to agree that we're going to work together. And so they accept others as they are, and they make an effort to move on. Um, The danger in this norming phase is that members may be so focused on preventing conflict that, that they are reluctant to share controversial ideas. And so sometimes in the norming phase, there's a danger of groupthink developing. Where people, you know, become so, um, you know, supportive of one another that they forget to bring up valid criticisms of one another. And uh, the most famous uh, tragic example of this is the 1986 uh, Challenger uh, space shuttle Challenger ex- explosion that ended in the deaths of the seven astronauts. Um, what happened is the, the people on that team. They became so invested on making sure that this launch took place that even though they may have had some uh, ideas about being reluctant uh, following through on, on giving the go for the challenger to, to take off, um, they, they didn't share that because they, they got involved in this group thing, and so they were reluctant to share these ideas. That's why it's important when you are a leader to develop norms that welcome controversy, and that welcome divergent ideas. And so if you are presiding over a group that they are reluctant to share that, it's because along the way, as a leader, you have not cultivated that kind of culture where you want opposing ideas, where you want people to disagree with one another so that you can develop the best solution. And so as a leader, remember in that forming stage that you want to set the stage for the culture. And all the culture is, is the normative ways that we interact with one another. Every group has a culture. Every group has a particular feeling, a way of communicating with one another, a set of unwritten rules that develop over time. And this is the culture of the group. And so as a leader, If you want the best group, if you want the best solutions, then you've got to cultivate uh, a a culture that says we're going to allow one another to disagree uh, with each other without becoming disagreeable, right? So sometimes leaders are so protective of this idea of unity that they'll shut down divergent thought. Well, in the long run, that's going to hurt you because you're going to end up listening to people that the only, the only thing they have to offer is, uh, you know, something that says yes to everything that you have to say. And if you're that kind of leader, uh, you'll, you'll find yourself eventually surrounded by people who have nothing to say and nothing to contribute. Why? Because you're so protective of that unity and you don't want anyone uh, disrupting that. But really, the disruptors are the best people in your organization because they're going to force you to get to that place where you can be the best leader and have the best organization possible. And the goal is to get to this fourth stage here uh, known as performing. Um, And the text that comes to mind here is John chapter 6, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, That is an example where the disciples, even though they did not have an immediate answer to the query of Christ, how are we going to feed all these people, we don't want to send them away, we do see the disciples acting uh, in accordance with one another and the instructions of Jesus. So Philip is the bean counter, and he's making the calculations and he says, even if we had this much money, we're not going to be able to feed all these people. Andrew is acting in accordance with his gifting, and he's going out and finding uh, people to bring to Jesus. He finds the little boy that has a lunch, and Jesus is able to multiply that. And then all of the disciples take the cue from Jesus to divide the crowd into manageable manageable small groups of 50 so that they can distribute what Jesus is giving miraculously to the crowd. So this is the best example, in in my estimation, in Scripture, of the disciples performing together as a cohesive group and doing what seemed impossible at the outset, right? Feeding this massive crowd. Uh, The Bible says there were 5,000 men, so if you multiply that by families, You're looking at upwards of twenty to 25,000 people in this crowd. And because the disciples, 12 men, come together under the leadership of Jesus, they're able to function in their giftings and in their roles. And they're not arguing with one another, but they're doing what is expected of them so that this large task of feeding upwards of 25,000 people becomes manageable because they are operating within their giftings and according to their roles and they're following the leadership of jesus and moving this crowd into smaller crowds of 50 which which suddenly makes it not so insurmountable obviously you've got jesus performing a miracle and that's that's what makes the difference but if the disciples had been unwilling to cooperate or if they had been unable to cooperate because of competing ideas, then they would have never been a part of this great miracle. And likewise for the groups that we lead. Likewise for the people that we're involved with on our team and in our ministry. We've got to make sure that we are leading them through these stages of development so that ultimately we can get to that performing place where we all want to be. Does that make sense with, with everyone, everybody tracking with me? So uh, a more formal definition of performing is, is when, when group norms and roles are established, the group members now focus on achieving common goals, often reaching an unexpectedly high level of success. And I, I, certainly John chapter six, the feeding of, of the multitude is an example of that. They are motivated. As, as, as members and as team members, they are knowledgeable. And the team members are now competent, autonomous, and able to handle the decision-making process without supervision. So Jesus wasn't looking over their shoulder. He gave them a simple instruction, right? Divide the groups into 50, and then he began to multiply the loaves and the fishes and pass it out. And so much so that there was enough left over for each of them to have a basket full of of food uh, for their journey ahead. Descent uh, in the performing stage is expected and allowed as long as it is channeled channeled through the means that are acceptable to the team. And this happens in the forming and in the norming uh, stages because in the storming stage, right, all of that conflict is worked out. And we understand. Okay, when we get into conflict, now we know how we're expected to behave and what the parameters for presenting our conflict is. And supervisors of the team during this phase are almost always participating. So not only was Jesus giving instructions, but he was participating as well. And if you think of the uh, the the three groups of four being broken down and operating as a team, those Those teams were working as they were expected to. And so even in the most high-performing teams, occasionally they will revert back to the earlier stages. Um, And many long-standing teams will go through these cycles over and over again to react to changing circumstances. And you see this a lot with the 12 disciples. They're presented a problem and they go back to arguing with one another or they go back to failing or they, they go back to, doing whatever they, they were doing in the beginning. And so with each new challenge, they had to be uh, escorted through these stages once again. We see this ultimately with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, right? After the death of Jesus, they're so disappointed that they kind of scatter. And then those fishing partners, uh, Andrew and Peter, James and John, those two groups of brothers that acted as partners, Peter famously says, well, I don't know what else to do. I'm going fishing. So they revert back to where they were in the beginning. And then you you see this cycle repeat itself where Jesus appears to them on the shore, invites them to come and, and to dine. He performs the miracle of the fishes once again to get their attention. And then he brings them through these stages once again until you finally arrive on the day of Pentecost, and you see another performing function of this group where they are acting um, as Jesus intended them to act. Peter stands up with the 11, and he delivers the gospel message at Pentecost, and then they move forward as a well-performing group, and this is because they are moving through these stages over and over again. Does that make sense to everyone? All right, good. Okay, we've got a, a few minutes left, and I want to save some time for some questions if you have any. But what I want to introduce is this um, idea of servant leadership, and we'll conclude with this uh, next week. But um, I want to go to that, that passage that, that Bryce reminded us of earlier, where Jesus was with his disciples. The last night that they were together and they shared this meal. And remember, as they're entering this upper room, they're arguing once again. Um, So remember that in that group development, they may default sometimes. And here we see famously the disciples defaulting to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they're arguing. So much so that they have neglected providing a servant to wash the feet. Of those entering to have the meal together. And remember, we talked about how critical this piece of servanthood would be, this piece of of first century hygiene would be because they weren't eating at a table where their feet are hidden under the table, but they're reclining on the floor around a blanket where their food would be. And so you can imagine that if you're reclining and, and you're around and you're, you're forming the parameter of this blanket where the food is served, the likelihood that you're going to be in close proximity of someone's feet increases dramatically. And so if you're walking through dirt and mud and worse, right, in first century Palestine to get to this meal, it is critical that there be someone prepared to wash the feet of those that are going to be sharing in this meal. And in all of their preparation, they neglected to provide a servant. And so Jesus quietly wraps a towel around his waist, and he gets the wash basin, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And in this moment, Jesus demonstrates the greatest attribute of his leadership style so much so that it has become known as servant leadership. And it is modeled by some of the greatest leaders throughout human history. And it is diametrically in opposition to what we think of as the American idea of leadership, where you power up, where you you beat your opponents back, and you're the last man standing and through ruthless strategy, Uh, You become the strong man and the most powerful person or the smartest person in the room. And by doing so, you demonstrate yourself as the alpha and you're the leader. If you look at the way that Jesus went about his business, especially in this last night that they were together, you will see that the attitude and the disposition of Jesus was anything Uh, but powering up. In fact, it was being a servant. And in every way, Jesus modeled servant leadership. Jesus modeled servant leadership. Now I'm going to go through some um, attributes of servant leadership. And if you don't get all of these, don't worry. We will unpack these more next week as we conclude. Um, But I'm going to go through these quickly. And then next week, we will unpack them together. But there are these attributes that I want to share with you of servant leaders. And next week, we will see by looking at this Last Supper, how Jesus modeled um, this leadership um, among the disciples. First of all, servant leaders humble themselves and wait for God to exalt them. Servant leaders humble themselves and wait for God to exalt them. Secondly, servant leaders follow Jesus rather than seek a position. Servant leaders follow Jesus rather than seek a position. Number three, servant leaders give up personal rights to find greatness in service to others. Servant leaders give up personal rights to find greatness in service to others. Number four, servant leaders can risk serving others because they trust that God is in control. Servant leaders can risk serving others because they trust that God is in control. Number five, servant leaders take up the towel of jesus's servanthood to meet the needs of others servant leaders take up the towel of servanthood to meet the needs of others so famously right jesus is the one who takes the towel in the basin and he says i'm going to serve others in this particular circumstance number six servant leaders share their responsibility and authority with others to meet a greater need. Servant leaders share their responsibility and authority with others to meet a greater need. And number seven, servant leaders multiply their leadership by empowering others to lead. Servant leaders multiply their leadership by empowering others to lead. Now, we'll go through these seven attributes of a servant leader in more detail next week. But I I want you to kind of think about these and and meditate on them this week. This has been the Lead Speakers podcast with Scott Lloyd. For more information, check out scottlloyd.com and share this content with a leader in your life today. Lead Speakers. Lead. Speak. Persuade.